We're in chapter 8 of Nehemiah as we continue our study. Nehemiah, a study in comfort. And we begin to see in chapter 8 all the way through the end in chapter 13 how comforting the Lord is to the people of Jerusalem through Jeremiah and through Nehemiah and through His work uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin in chapter 8, verse 1, and uh, there is a trick I will employ as I read this. You'll know. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, six hours. He stands and reads, and they stand and listen. In the presence of the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform they had made for the, for the purpose. Beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Pedadiah and Meshiel, uh, Malkachah, Hazem, Habadanin, uh, Zechariah, and Meshlam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, thirteen Levites... That's a good way to do it, right? Thirteen Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense to, so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then Ezra said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing. Ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way and to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' house, houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the word of the law. And they found in it, written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. 
and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go into the hills, bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palms, and every leafy tree to make booze, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booze for themselves, each on his roof and in the courts and in the court of the house of God, in the square at the water gate, in the square at the gate of Ephraim, and all the assembly and of those who had returned from captivity made booze and lived in the booze. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, read the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. The church was 200 years old when Charles Spurgeon became the pastor, and his tenure was 38 years. During his tenure, that church started an orphanage. They started a pastor's school. They started a literature society. They even started a newsletter, and they titled it from the book of Nehemiah. It was called the sword and the trowel. But of all of the things the Metropolitan Tabernacle did during Charles Spurgeon's tenure, there was one thing that got the attention of all the people of London, and that was they built a giant new sanctuary. It seated over 10,000 people, and for 20 years it was full. But the interesting thing is, they built it right in the central business district in London, and they built it on a site where decades or centuries earlier, Christians had been murdered for their faith. They picked that plot intentionally. And when they built this large sanctuary, they chiseled into the cornerstone these words, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, without shedding of blood, there is no church. Not just the martyr's blood, but the blood of Jesus. And you know something? Charles Spurgeon never deviated from that message. A year after the building was built, a British man called a friend in America and said, I'd like you to come and hear Spurgeon. When the day arrived, the two men walked up the marble staircase into the building and up to the second mezzanine where there were thousands of people gathered and they sat and they sang hymns and they listened attentively to the reading of God's Word and they, then they listened to Charles Spurgeon preach for an hour and 15 minutes. When the service was over, the two men left the mezzanine, came out into the street and once they crossed it, the Britisher said to the American, well, what did you think of him? The American said, who? The British man said, "By Spurgeon, of course. And the man said, well, frankly, I was thinking a lot more about Jesus than Spurgeon. Someone has said that in most Bible-believing churches today, what you hear is law and not gospel. In most churches, Bible-believing churches, the message you will get is, this is what you should do. This is how you haven't done it. So go do better. Someone has said most churches should have a sign over the sanctuary door that says, abandon all hope, all you who enter here. 
famous German theologian who was reformed in his theology and was solid in his orthodoxy was once asked, what happens when a preacher preaches the law on Sunday? His reply was swift, difficulty Sunday afternoon. (laughs) When asked to explain, he said, well, there are really two problems. First of all, the preacher will know that he's preached demand rather than comfort and he won't be able to nap Sunday afternoon. And second, all those who listen will subconsciously be depressed throughout the entire week. You know, when most people come to this eighth chapter of Nehemiah, they see only the law. And they miss the grace. They focus on the demand and they miss the comfort. But Nehemiah doesn't miss it. I mean, think of this. Nehemiah is living 440 years before the birth of Christ, and yet he understands what most Christians don't. The purpose of the law is always to get us to grace. Nehemiah knows it, and he shows it in this chapter. So let's dig in and look at it. First of all, notice the place where all this happens. Verse 1, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Now as you know, they had 12 gates in this newly built wall. And on the eastern side was a major gate called the water gate. And it's interesting, the water gate was well named because that was the only spring, the spring of Gibeon, that was located in the city of Jerusalem. That was the only place where they could get water. That was the only place of refreshment. So think of the irony of this. For over a hundred years, these people have turned their back on the Word of God. For over a hundred years, they've known nothing but spiritual drought. But now when the wall is built, they come to this square, which is a square in the wall, where there's the spring of Gibeon, and they gather and they say, Ezra, go get the book. For a hundred years or more, they've experienced nothing but spiritual drought. Ezra has come to Jerusalem 13 years earlier. He's come to rebuild the temple. And even that temple rebuild was fraught with challenges. But look what these people do. Once the wall is built, they gather as one man. You know what that means? They all had the same desire. 50,000 Jews gather by the water gate and they say to the high priest, go get the book of the law of Moses. Now in the book of Ezra, there are several times when Ezra the priest, during these 13 years, gets the book of the law and he begins to read it to them. And he begins to teach them. And every time he does it, it's at his initiation. And that stands to reason because in the book of Ezra, it tells us that Ezra had three particular senses of call to ministry. First of all, he was called by God to study the law. Secondly, he was called by God to obey the law. And thirdly, he was called by God to preach it. But here's not preaching. Here he's not obeying God, he's obeying the people. 
50,000 Jews say to him, go get the book of the law. This is the only time in the history of Israel when the people of Jerusalem demand that the law of God be read to them. And they gather as one man. They have the same desire. In fact, their desire is so great, they build a wooden platform so that Ezra, don't know how tall he is, but they build a, a, a wooden platform so he and a number of Levites can stand on this so he will be above them so that they will hear everything he reads. 50,000 people, no microphone. That's how strong their desire is to hear the law of God. Now, some say the reason they do this is because they're so overwhelmed with the miracle of the wall. Remember, the wall has been in rubble. By the time it's rebuilt, it's 16 feet wide and 40 feet high, and all the gates are in place. And they all know that there's no way humanly possible that that could happen. God had to have done it. There's others who say, no, it's not the miracle of the wall, it's the messenger. They are so impressed with the felicity of Ezra's faith. He's so committed to the things of God, they're just overwhelmed with his righteousness. The problem with that is it's been 13 years that he's been there and they could care two hoots about him. Now there's another reason they do this, and it's a much greater reason. They don't demand that the law of God be read because of the miracle of the wall or because of the messenger. They do it because the Holy Spirit is all over them. The Holy Spirit of God has taken possession of these people. They want to hear God's law read. They've never wanted it before, but they want it now. Remember what Paul says when he quotes the psalmist? He says, no one is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. And for 150 years, the people of Jerusalem have proved that. It's not their goodness that brings them to the water gate. It's not their smarts. It's not their esteem for Ezra or their amazement at the miracle. What drives them to the water gate is the Holy Spirit. He plants in their hearts a thirst, not for water, but for living water. I want you to think of the parallels between this and the gospel. The king of heaven appoints his servant to go and reconstruct the ruins of his people's lives. His servant is not simply a cupbearer. His servant is his son, Jesus. And Jesus comes to us and he accomplishes the work. Do you see this? The parallel? In Nehemiah, it's Nehemiah who's sent by Artaxerxes to Jerusalem to build, rebuild a physical wall. The king sends his servant, and he does the work. He accomplishes the work. In the gospel, the king of heaven sends his son who accomplishes the work on the cross. But then, the Holy Spirit of God applies the work of Jesus to our lives. That's exactly what's happening here. The Holy Spirit comes to these people 
who are the beneficiaries of a rebuilt wall, and the Holy Spirit is in essence saying, I'm going to rebuild you. Your life is in rubble. You've had no interest in the things of God. I'm going to open up your blind eyes. I'm going to unstop your deaf ears. I'm going to soften your heart. And you are going to long for my word. That's why they call the priest to get the book of the law. They don't want to hear Ezra speak. They want to hear God speak. And that's exactly what you see here. What happens in every heart of every Christian is the Holy Spirit comes in and He softens our hearts, He unstops our deaf ears, He opens our blind eyes, and we have a hunger and a thirst for His Word. Not all the time, but often. It's exactly what He does here. Exactly the same thing. Second, notice not only the place, notice the priest. Look at verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. Now you know what Nehemiah tells us about Ezra? He's a priest and a scribe. That's all, that's all he tells us. And yet the Bible tells us much more about Ezra. Did you know that Ezra was a direct descendant of Aaron, who is the brother of Moses? Did you know that Ezra is a direct descendant of every high priest to ever dwell in Jerusalem? Do you know that Ezra was the high priest of Jerusalem? And not only that, he was the one who 13 years before Artaxerxes sent Nehemiah to Jerusalem, was sent to Jerusalem. And you know how old he was? He was 23 years old. And you know what he brought with him? All the gold, all the silver, all of the instruments that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian uh, king, had stolen out of, the, out of the temple. Artaxerxes had said to this 23-year-old priest, I want you to go back to Jerusalem, I want you to take all of that stuff, and I want you to build a temple to your God. You know what that means? Ezra is hot stuff. <laughs> I mean, Ezra is a big deal. Ezra is the most famous, the most powerful, the most godly man in Jerusalem. In fact, his name means God comes and helps. And yet, when you read this chapter in Nehemiah, Ezra is a bit player. And so is Nehemiah. Do you know who's the main star? The Holy Spirit. One time Charles Wesley was asked, when you finish your ministry, who's going to take over? What's going to happen to that ministry? I mean, aren't you concerned about that? I mean, you've had a great ministry, a worldwide ministry. When you leave, who's your successor? What's going to happen? You know what Wesley said? God buries the workman, goes on with the work. In other words, get your eyes off me, get them onto the Lord. He'll take care of business. It's his work anyway. His brother John Wesley was brought to Christ through Count von Zinzendorf. You know what Count von Zinzendorf said when he was asked the same question? He said, the preacher has three jobs. Preach, die, and be forgotten. You say, that's cruel. It's not cruel. It's true. And that's exactly what Nehemiah knows. This isn't about a wall. This isn't about a priest. This isn't about a cupbearer. This is about God Almighty. God has done the work. And so they stand before the water gate. Ezra opens the Word of God. 
The people build a platform so he can be lifted up so they could hear him speak, and they don't want to hear his words, they want to hear God's words. The priest is a bit player. The goal of a priest is to get people complete access to God, and once that access is made, go away. That's the truth of every preacher that's godly. The goal is to get the hearer to the Lord. And then the messenger goes away. Then third, notice not only the the place and the priest, notice the pronouncement. Look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, who was the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why do you think they're weeping? Do you get this? He's reading the law of Moses and the people are sobbing. He tells us they have their heads down, their hands up, their heads down, faces to the ground, and they're sobbing. Why are they crying? Because they know how guilty they are. And notice who tells them who guilty, who's, how guilty they are. It's not Ezra. It's not the Levites. It's the Lord. They're listening to God's Word and the Holy Spirit is convicting them. Ezra's not reading like this. You shall do. Did you hear this? <laughs> He's simply reading. And they're weeping because they know how screwed up they are. I mean, think of this. A thousand years earlier, when God brought their ancestors through the Red Sea into the wilderness, it was for one reason. So that He could be known by them. Remember what Moses said to Pharaoh? Let our people go that we might worship our God. And when they get into the wilderness, it's very interesting. The Lord calls the people to come to Him and they say, no, Moses, you go. We're scared of Him. We don't want anything to do with Him. We might die if we get into His presence. No, Moses, you be our intermediary. You go and talk to Him and then you come back and tell us what He said. And yet here, a thousand years later, they don't want an intermediary. They want to meet God. You see this? They want to meet him at the water gate. And as Ezra begins to read, they begin to understand. They don't need Moses. They don't need Nehemiah. They don't need Ezra. They thirst for God. They want him. Have you ever had that experience in your life? Now think of this, Ezra knows how faithless they've been. Ezra knows all of their addictions. Ezra knows how self-focused they've been. Ezra knows all of their dirt. He knows how rebellious, what ingrates they are. But Ezra doesn't say any of that. He simply reads and gets out of the way. He doesn't preach him a sermon. He doesn't add his commentary. He doesn't talk about his priesthood. He lets God speak for himself. And the result is deep down, they have a sense of shame and surrender. 
300 years ago in New England, when the Holy Spirit began the Great Awakening, one of the men he used was George Whitfield. And you know the amazing thing about George Whitfield? He would stand in a field or in a town, and thousands of people would gather around him, and he would preach. You know how he preached? He would read. He would read his manuscript for two and a half hours. He didn't look up. He'd simply read, and then when he was done, he'd look up, and everybody was wailing. That's what happens here. God is speaking to His people. And they recognize the gravity of their sin. They are shamed. Now that's where most sermons end. And if it ends there, it's not biblical gospel preaching. Because that's not where the story ends. Look at verse 12. Notice the praise. And all of the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to those in need, making great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. Do you see this? In the space of a couple of verses, their tears turned to joy. Their sorrow and mourning turns to gladness. Why? Well, Nehemiah tells us, They understood the words that were declared to them. What words? What words did they understand that turned them from misery to delight? There's only one word that will do that, and that's grace. They began to see the grace. The Holy Spirit took them to the gospel. The Holy Spirit said, you are a sinner and you are forgiven because I've paid for your debt. Years ago at the end of a worship service where Tony Campolo was preaching, it was out in California. He prayed before he preached, he prayed after his pre- he preached and when he was greeting people at the end of the service, a woman said, you know Dr. Campolo, I really didn't appreciate your prayer. Campolo looked her in the eye and said, that's okay, I wasn't praying to you anyway. And Nehemiah would understand that. This is not about Nehemiah. This is not about Ezra. This is about the Holy Spirit and every one of those 50,000 people. They come as one man. They're guilty as one man. And the Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, You're right. You are absolutely a lawbreaker. You're an ingrate. You're rebellious. You deserve nothing but judgment. but I've taken that judgment on myself. Have you ever noticed how much more willing God is to forgive people than we are? In Luke 15, Jesus tells the greatest story He ever tells. One guy said to me a few weeks ago, he said, you know, you always get back to that story. (laughs) Yeah, it's the greatest one Jesus tells. Man has two sons. And both sons are exactly the same. They can only think of themselves. And yet in the light of the Father's grace, one of them is able to accept it. One of them is able to to willingly allow his father to pay the price for his sin. Remember what the father says? 
let's kill the fatted calf. Let's have a party for my son who was dead is now alive. He was lost but is now found. That's what the Heavenly Father does in Jerusalem this day. Weeping gives way to, to rejoicing. Grace shifts their eyes from the cost of their sin to the one who is willing to pay the cost for their sin. Look what they do. In response to the word of grace, in response to their rejoicing, they obey the Lord. They go and eat, they go and drink, and they go and they spend their money sending portions to those who are least and last and lost to the needy of Jerusalem. They have a seven-day party. They do what the household of the Father in Luke 15 did. They kill the fatted calf and they celebrate forgiveness and grace. So let's review the story. In the face of the miracle of the wall, the Holy Spirit moves the heart of these thousands of Jews in Jerusalem to desire God. They're so moved that they go to the priest uh, Ezra and they say, go get the law of Moses and read it to us. And when he reads it to them, the Holy Spirit applies the truth of that word to their heart and they're cut to the core and they're miserable and they're in mourning. The Holy Spirit lets them see that they are by nature lawbreakers. He lets them see how screwed up they are. He lets them see the extent of their own rubble in their own lives. But He doesn't stop there. He never stops there. He always shows them the One who has come to rescue them, who has paid the price for their sin, who alone can bring rubble and ruin into a beautiful temple of grace. Now imagine if Nehemiah had said to those people, what would you think of him? Think of who? Ezra, of course, he's a high priest. They all, with one voice, would say, Ezra. Frankly, we were thinking a lot more about God than Ezra. In the midst of their party, the people would say, how can I think of anyone else but the Lord God Almighty who has forgiven and restored me and made me know that I'm His child. What about you? How much celebration is there in your life? You see, the Holy Spirit, when He applies the truth of God's Word to your life, He never allows you to stay in a place of guilt. He always takes you to the place of forgiveness. And he always promotes in his people a sense that he is everything and we are nothing. And that's good news. Think about that. Amen.